0: I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And And we're we're The the Trade Trade Guys. Guys.
1: You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS, where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys.
2: In this episode of The Trade Guys, we break down the UK's decision to join CPTPP, Plus, we'll discuss fishery subsidies negotiations at the WTO and the proposal from the U.S. to address forced labor concerns. The Trade Guys also talk about the latest amendments to the China bill, including renewal of MTB and GSP, as well as an inbound investment screening mechanism. Stay tuned for all that and more on this episode of The Trade Guys. Good morning, trade guys. Let's start off with the most recent news this week. Britain formally applied to join CPTPP in February, and today the United Kingdom officially got the go-ahead to begin the process of joining the CPTPP trade plot. This seems like a good development for the UK, but I'm interested in hearing what your reactions are to the news.
1: Well, look, this is, uh, I think, very positive for the UK. It was uh, both considered in advance and uh, predicted by some internal observers. I would note that there's a good friend of both the trade guys and CSIS and a great New Zealander named Tim Grosser, who was the trade minister for New Zealand from, I believe, about 2008 to 2015, so was really responsible for a lot of the negotiations of The Trans-Pacific Partnership. And then he became uh, New Zealand's ambassador to the US for a few years. And while he was ambassador to the US, the Brexit took place. And one of uh, Ambassador Grosser's predictions was that uh, if Brexit were to be executed, that Britain would enter TPP and that the structure of the agreement was designed to accommodate that. So despite the fact that Britain itself is not a Pacific nation in, in any geographic way, it was at least foreseen by uh, some of the people involved at the creation. So look, I think it makes TPP or CBTPP, the unpronounceable acronym, a more influential group going forward because it adds more heft to the decision-making of that block of traders. So Japan is is the largest of the partners today, the 11 parties to, to the agreement. Japan's roughly a $5 trillion economy, still the third largest in the world. The UK is is about half that size, 2.6 trillion, roughly speaking. It's the number five economy in the world. Prior to this announcement, Canada and Australia were the next two largest partners. They're both about 1.5 trillion, roughly speaking, in GDP. So, so it really adds that additional heft. And it is, I think, entirely consistent with the UK's longtime approach to international trade. They've always been a sort of a seagoing, open economy. And uh, I remember Churchill telling de Gaulle that if uh, Britain was ever forced to choose between the continent and the deep blue sea, that they would take the deep blue sea. And so for me, this is a consistent move, good for Britain, revealing once again that uh, probably the greatest unforced error in American trade policy since Smoot-Hawley was the failure for us to adopt TPP. It was a bipartisan failure. It played out over the course of two or three years. But uh, that, that's where we are.
0: Yeah, I was going to pick up on that last point. I, I mean, I think Scott's right about the significance for the UK. And it's impressive that they're looking that far abroad and they're looking outward. But it contrasts fairly sharply with the United States, at least in trade terms, appears to be looking increasingly inward. You know, the conversation in the administration is about buy America. It's about reshoring. It's not about uh, reaching out. Um, We've talked a little bit about this before. It, it's They're much more focused on the distribution of the benefits of trade and making sure everybody gets their share, which is important. Uh, but in the process, they're ignoring uh, creating new benefits and the possibility that there might be more to distribute. We missed the boat when Trump pulled out of TPP, no question about it. And it looks like we're going to miss it again. And the the UK action, I, I mean, contrasts rather sharply with ours, and what it will do, I think, in the region is reinforce, uh, sadly, the idea that the U.S. is, is fading. You know, our, our presence there is, is military. You know, we're sending aircraft carriers through the South China Sea and we're sending destroyers through the Taiwan Strait. And, uh, but if you want to demonstrate a commitment to the region, which is what's a critical element of the Obama policy, and I think of the Biden policy, You've got to do more than that. You've got to have an economic presence. What concerns me, too, is that, you know, the, the reason seems to be that, uh, at least, you know, when, when people talk about this is, well, it would be complicated politically. And I, I'm i inclined to think increasingly that's fighting the last war. You know, it was complicated politically, and there were a lot of people that opposed it in in uh, 2015 and, and 2016 when Obama was, was working on getting it through. I think this may be a case of that was then, this is now. Times have changed. I think people appreciate uh, the need for a presence there. Uh, and I think they appreciate the, the economic growth that would come along with it. So I think more people need to go back to the administration and say, you know, fight the next battle, don't fight the last battle.
2: And so do you think the Biden administration looking at this accession of the UK will be more likely to join in the coming months?
0: Well, I thought from the beginning that they would get there eventually, that it was just going to take them two or three years to get there and that they would follow the the time-honored democratic strategy of, of you know, complaining that it, the agreement was not good enough and then having a negotiation to produce some changes in it, then declare it fixed and and join. I still think that's going to happen, but we're going to waste two or three years getting there. It would be, I think, a lot more compelling and would be more dramatic in the region,
1: and it would be a more effective response to China if we did it right away. You know, look, it's, uh, it's really stunning. Both the administration and the Congress are almost exclusively focused on internal matters. They're focused on the domestic economy, when they do talk about international trade issues, it is on behalf of the competitiveness of the domestic economy, not not looking at any broader uh, set of agreements that might open markets or or in, increase our commercial presence with the rest of the world. And so you you look at both what's happening on the Hill and the and what's happening in the administration. It's unclear how we're actually going to press an agenda forward that involves us taking advantage of the fact that we're still the world's largest economy. We're far and away the world's largest importer. We have commercial interests around the world from our leading companies. And none of this is being addressed by today's uh, policy discussions, in, in my view, in any, in any comprehensive way. So uh, I think we'll be too slow and we'll miss the opportunity. And I, I agree with Bill about fighting the last war. I think there's that tendency.
2: Speaking of trade groups, let's talk about some recent news regarding fishery subsidies at the WTO. The Biden administration and USTR TIE said that it wanted the issue of high-sea slavery to be part of the ongoing fisheries negotiations. The U.S. proposal calls for the agreement to explicitly recognize the forced labor problem and requires WTO members to notify the organization of fishing vessels suspected of using the forced labor. This is related to the new U.S. CBP Customs Border Protection import ban on seafood from a fleet of Chinese fishing vessels. So what's the story here? What's going on at the WTO? And how does this new proposal from the U.S. affect it?
1: Well, there's nothing new under the sun. And what's happening now with this proposal, if it is one from the Biden administration, is of a piece with all the reasons that the Fisheries Subsidies Agreement failed in the past. And and I think at this point, Jasmine, you gotta recognize that the WTO has been talking or the GATT has been talking about fishery subsidies probably longer than you've been alive. And it's failed cons- consistently because people try to attach other issues to it. One big failure was in 1999 at the Seattle WTO ministerial, where it was close to an agreement, but fishery subsidies were not agreed then because of the insistence on a single undertaking and dealing with a lot of very controversial agricultural issues where agreement couldn't be reached. And so it's been a failure ever since then to move this forward. Now, look, I'm not taking a position on forced labor or slave labor. I'm definitely anti-slavery, so don't want to be mischaracterized in that. But I would also note that U.S. law has long prohibited imports uh, made with forced or, or prison labor. I think the first provisions were as far back as 1890 in the McKinley Tariff Act. Uh, so U.S. has long had restrictions on on forced labor, uh, products made with forced labor. So it, this is not a problem uh, with U.S. law. There's plenty of enforcement opportunities, as, uh, as has been in the news lately. But it, it is enough of a mission creep that it may bog down the, the, the what was basically a subsidies negotiation. OK. Uh, all to the detriment of fish. By the way, you know, the, the real problem here, this is a classic commons problem. Nobody owns the oceans. And we, as in our ability to advance technology, have have reached the point where fishery technology, fishing technology, is so good we can basically probably hoover out all the fish in the sea if we wanted to. That would be a very bad thing for fish, and it'd be a very bad thing for the human human consumption of, of this important source of protein. That's why these fishery subsidies have been going on, and that's why they're so important. But as always, at near the end, somebody adds a, an extraneous issue that gives people who oppose the subsidies a, a, a reason to object, and, and uh, we'll get back into a do loop again that'll last a few years. So um, uh, I'm disappointed. It'll be interesting to
0: see how it plays out. I mean, I'm, I'm waiting for the country to stand up and say, wait, we support slavery. And we, and we don't want to tie this agreement down so because we, we want to continue enslaving people. Not going to happen. Everybody's going to be against slavery. But of course, that doesn't mean that it's going to sail through. There will inevitably be a debate over what does that mean? What does forced labor mean? How do you determine if it is taking place? Who determines uh, if it's taking place? Uh, because the people that are doing it will inevitably deny it. So how do you have a... a you know, a process or a regime for trying to figure out what the truth is. And then, of course, if if you do end up deciding that somebody has uh, engaged in this this horrible thing, what do you do about it? And, and what will the agreement permit countries to do about it? So the argument will be over, you know, people that want weak penalties as opposed to people that want strong penalties, people who want countries to be able to make unilateral declar- declarations about others' behavior, and other other people that wanted you know, a... a a process in which they can object and 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 block in specific cases, so it gets very complicated very quickly, and runs the risk of of uh, I, no pun pun intended sinking the entire boat. I mean Scott is right. the The United States already has the authority to address this problem, and has been doing so. Just uh, last week, they issued a withhold release order against. Uh, imports of of seafood from one particular chinese company the dalian uh, shipping company or fishing company on the grounds of forced labor which was denied uh, as it always is by the chinese who always deny everything but you know that's unilateral and if other countries don't take similar steps then it really doesn't doesn't matter the that particular company's most recent shipments of uh into the united states were very small actually because the company has financial problems of its own but in the past they've been very big like I think 21 million dollars as I recall in um, 2018 so you know they've been a it's been a, a big deal whether we can get other countries to agree to it or, or not I think I'm worried about that and, and Scott makes really the more important point is that the agreement is supposed to be about saving the fish it's supposed to be an environmental agreement and uh, you can keep adding more things onto it and it's it's Hard to deal with because you can't say it's not important. You can't say uh, slavery is unimportant, forced labor is unimportant. Uh, But at some point, the more baggage you throw on board the ship, the more likely it is to sink. I'm worried that this is going to contribute to that this time around.
2: Well, Scott, you're definitely right that this has been long-term issue, ongoing issue. 1999 <laughs> is when I was born, so.
1: I, I guessed right, no, and, and you're mature beyond your years, but I, I suspected this. we've been talking about this longer than you've been breathing air, so.
0: Think of it this way, Jasmine. You have a golden opportunity, if you live long enough, to be one of those rare, rare people who lived in three centuries. You know, all you yeah. have to do is make it to 101,
2: yeah, and hopefully before I reach 101 years old, the WTO will finish their fisheries negotiations.
1: Yeah, well. Not a sure thing, but we certainly hope so. <laughs> it may be a safer bet that
0: you hit 101 when the WTO finishes, but we can always hope.
2: Switching gears to our most frequently discussed topic the last few weeks, the China Belt. So on Thursday, the Senate voted overwhelmingly to approve an amendment to the U.S. Innovation and Competition Act. This amendment is called the Trade Act of 2021, and notably it approved renewals for the Generalized System of Preferences Program and the Miscellaneous Tariff Bill. So obviously this doesn't get signed into law and fully passed until it goes to the House and then also to President Biden. But what's your guys' take on the renewal of these two programs?
1: Well, let me talk about the Miscellaneous Tariffs Bill. And in my mind, this is a pure competitiveness play. Uh, because uh, th- th- what what's in the miscellaneous tariffs bill that fre- that used to used to have its own standing in congress are products that their imports which face some tariff barrier but there has to be no domestic source of that product or that particular ingredient or or material in order to to, to qualify for the bill it also has to have a what's called a de minimis effect on cost to the government. So there's a threshold of government lost revenue from the tariff. But the more important piece is uh, the United States imports about a trillion dollars, roughly speaking, of intermediate goods. These are the things that, that American manufacturers use to make their products make something that, that that is is a finished product sold by that American company and those ingredients and materials and intermediates are usually sourced on a best price value service basis and there's a lot of a lot of things that are used as ingredients in in American manufacturing that aren't made in America anymore and those are the very items that it makes no sense to put a tariff on because it simply increases the cost and reduces the competitiveness of the, of the final product made by those American manufacturers. So I would note that both other industrial economies like Canada and the, and the European Union have the same structure in place. There's, uh, their programs are actually simpler to administer, but uh, the, the US uh, so-called MTB or miscellaneous tariffs bill are, are simply a collection of those items so uh, by reducing the tariff on, a, on an item that doesn't really need tariff protection because there's no domestic source, what, what we're doing is reducing the cost of those ingredients and materials to American manufacturers. So that's the competitiveness argument there. I think it belongs, and we should make this easier, not harder for manufacturers.
0: I was going to make a comment about the politics of it, because uh, having spent, uh, oh, I don't know, 17 years or so in the Senate, I always get, I'm fascinated by Senate procedure. And this is a Um, a really interesting example. And Schumer has been bragging about it, and and rightfully so. It's basically a a return to the way the Senate used to operate. They're actually having debates, they're actually having votes on amendments. People, of course, are complaining, including in the public, that they don't have time to review all this stuff. And, you know, in a way, that's just a signal. They've, They've gotten used to what's been going on for the last 10 or so years, which is deals are cut in back rooms, and then they get out, floated out in public for a while. And eventually there's a, you know, an overwhelming vote to get them through because they work everything out quietly, which is a a great opportunity for lobbyists to lobby. This is actually kind of, in an odd way, kind of a more transparent process. People can actually go to the floor and offer an amendment, and it'll be disposed of. If Schumer continues with this, we have to kind of get used to, uh, you know, the old normal coming back, which, which is a good thing. In this particular case, I was intrigued because this was an amendment and it was not just the miscellaneous Tariff bill, it was GSP renewal, it was a bunch of things. It was worked out in the finance committee between the chairman and the ranking Member, Senator Wyden and and Senator Crapo. So it had uh, bipartisan support. And what uh, apparently Schumer had told people in advance was that if that, that happened, then those amendments were going to be accepted. This one wasn't, and it was not accepted at the leadership level. It wasn't at the committee level. And uh, apparently, in the miscellaneous tariff case, people were worried that this was going to reduce tariffs on China. And the answer is, well, yeah, it probably would. I mean, I think about probably three-fourths of the miscellaneous tariff items are, are chemicals, and a lot of them come from China. They're all small amounts. I mean, you know, there's, there's a per unit uh, camp on on the amount of revenue that any of these could cost. And Scott's right. It's it's entirely win-win from the standpoint of the United States. It just makes us more competitive producing things. But there was concern about the optics of reducing tariffs on China as part of a bill that was going to make life more difficult for China. I think, likewise, there was a concern uh, in the case of GSP and some of the other matters that I mean, this gets kind of Machiavellian. I think there were some people said, you know, we want to do a trade bill, but let's do a trade. Let's save this stuff for a trade bill later in the year. So we'll have some popular stuff to put in the trade bill. And let's not, you know, let's not do all the low hanging fruit now. Uh, Let's save some of it for later. Yeah, I don't think that's a particularly persuasive argument. Like the miscellaneous tariff bill, GSP expired, expired at the end of last year. So people are now paying duties that that uh, nobody wants them to pay. Uh, and then they ought not to pay. And it just is plain good government. Uh, if we're going to, if you're going to renew it anyway, why not do it sooner rather than later? And it's telling, I think, that there was a big fight about this on the floor. Senator Crapo was upset because a number of the provisions in this amendment were his. And he demanded a vote. And in the end, uh, Senator Schumer folded and the amendment passed 91 to 4, which suggests that it, That was not very controversial, and a lot of people thought it was a good idea. So there may be a lesson there for the leadership that sometimes they should um, listen to the followers and pay attention.
2: Another thing we should discuss related to the China bill is the Casey Cornyn Amendment that would require an interagency review of U.S. investments in China or a separate shortlist of adversarial countries. So this would be a huge change for U.S. law, which has had provisions for screening inbound investments, but not for outbound. Can you explain what this amendment would mean?
0: Well, yeah, I've had conversations about this. I think it's a bad idea. And I told Senator Casey's people that, but, (laughs) you know, that and $4 will get you a cup of coffee at Starbucks or wherever. It would set up a parallel process that looks like CFIUS, except it would handle outbound Uh, investment rather than inbound investment. And it would uh, give the entity the authority to block outbound transactions based on a a review that was broader than a national security review. And it, it, it also would involve elements of economic competitiveness in the review, which would make it a broader review than CFIUS and would also raise a lot of questions about the parameters. There's been a lot of business community resistance to it, Simply, uh, well, uh, for a lot of reasons, the the biggest one, I think, is on the grounds of vagueness. It really doesn't provide a very clear direction on what transactions would have to be reviewed and what would not, uh, which would mean it would have a chilling effect on outbound investment uh, because companies wouldn't know if they were going to be permitted to do it. And sometimes when you're in that situation, the safest course is you just don't do anything. The cynics would say that may be what the authors of the amendment want to discourage outbound investment and and have it take place inside the United States. Uh, I think the other problem with it is is that it's redundant. Uh, Congress has actually considered this before. When it debated renewing uh, CFIUS in 2018, uh, which it did, this same question came up and Congress decided that rather than create a separate new entity that basically was parallel to CFIUS, They would rely on the the existing export control process, because the issue, the underlying issue, and I think Senator Casey and Senator Cornyn have been clear about this, is the potential transfer of critical technology to adversaries. They don't want American technology to end up in the hands of our, our, our adversaries. That's a legitimate objective. They're concerned that an outbound investment might end up involving the transfer of technology. What the Congress decided in 2018 was essentially no, that we already control the export of critical technology through export controls. And if that's the problem, we should just focus on the problem rather than focusing on the money, which is what an investment issue is at its core. And that rather than trying to, to uh, you know block the entire thing, uh, the entire investment, uh, the entire company involvement, Let's focus on blocking the technology that we don't want to be exported. And we already have a mechanism to do that. So I think the, the business community's view, uh, and a strong one, has been that uh, this is unnecessary, redundant, and the way it's, it's phrased is
1: exceptionally vague and would have a chilling effect on outbound investment. This is something, as Bill points out, that Congress has recently considered, We have an export control regime that covers the the kinds of intellectual property or the core technologies that it appears the senators are concerned about. But what no one's done is demonstrated that the combination of our modernized export control regime and the uh, sanctions regimes that we have available to the president under IEPA and and other authorities... uh, are, are in some ways lacking. So uh, but definitely this thing has scope problems written all over it because it is not the equivalent of CFIUS. CFIUS is an investment screen for national security only. Okay, and it's developed that way. It's been reauthorized by Congress as a national security screen for inbound investment, not for general purposes or whatever, whatever a group of senators or, or a group of, of elected officials are concerned about this week. All right. So uh, I do think the scope is a big problem. And look, here would be my uh, advice to proponents of this is go back and review what happened with the Lacey Act. Now, the Lacey Act, L-A-C-E-Y, there's a very old statute goes back to 1900. And it was a it was a prohibition on uh, trafficking in illegal wildlife. So because it was an old law it had strict liability so there were no third party certification process if you did it by accident you didn't do it with you weren't knowing when you did it the statute didn't exclude it so uh, it was quite a quite a strict but it was it was restricted to illegal wildlife which is a very small subset of trade in in animal products well uh, some ambitious and uh, and uh, diligent congress critters uh, got the idea in 2007 or 8, somewhere around in there, that we ought to expand the Lacey Act to plants, and they expanded it to in 2008 to plants and plant products. Well, what's a plant product? Well, the owner's manual of an imported car is a plant product that's imported. Is it exempt from the new statute? No, it is not. And so the strict liability of proving that that the the pulp wood pulp used to produce that owner's manual paper, writing in the glove compartment of that imported car, the manufacturer had to take responsibility for the source of the pulp, that it was not illegal in some way, uh, which is ridiculous. And I, I got involved in this because at the time, the company I worked for imported rayon, mostly because there's no rayon made in the United States. Well, rayon is made from wood pulp. We imported it from Germany. But if you go to a rayon plant and you look in that slurry of pulp that starts the process, you have no idea where the trees came from, you don't know what kind of trees they are. Okay, and, and so there was no certification mechanism and no way to assure that none of it was illegal, illegally harvested or in illegal in, under any international or local law. Uh, so th- what you can do is by legislating via analogy, you can create a lot of problems that you don't intend and uh, and they gotta clean up a mess later. So for me, adopting an outbound investment screening mechanism that is an analogy to CFIUS, but not thought through as well, not subject to the kind of of argument and debate and investigation and hearings that uh, CFIUS ultimately was, uh, both at its start in Exon Florio and on into the future. I think it's a bad idea. I think maybe we ought to go think about this, hold a few hearings, and determine what it is Determine what it is we actually want that we don't have now in the current law. And then that that would be a better starting point. Its fate right now is uncertain. The amendment was not offered
0: during the debate in May and the window for amendments is closing rapidly. There's going to be a vote on, on one more when they reconvene next Tuesday. There is at the same time, a, a manager's amendment being assembled And there's speculation that this, the the Casey Cornyn Amendment may end up as part of it. I think that's probably unlikely. Manager's amendments usually are reserved for um, stuff that's not controversial that all senators have uh, signed off on. Uh, This would not be in that category. There are some senators that have been clear in their opposition to it. So I think it's unlikely that it makes it into the manager's amendment. Maybe Senator Casey and Senator Cornyn can still find a way to get a vote on it, and then we'll see. And I have to say, you know, uh, if they can get a vote on it, uh, more power to them. I think the Senate should be voting. That's the way to solve these problems. You know, you don't do it in the back room. Let the senators vote, be counted, see what happens.
2: I'm sure we'll continue to have updates to the negotiations and amendments that are being added.
1: Yeah, because the Senate is being the Senate, which is a good thing. The other thing we can talk about next week,
0: nothing like doing a a look-ahead, is the uh, the WTO Trips Council meets formally on June 8th and 9th, and they're going to discuss the vaccine waiver, which we've covered in previous episodes. Not a lot has changed since the last time we talked about it, so there's no need to say anything about it today. But this could potentially be a significant meeting to see if anything's going to happen. I think the choices are that nothing will happen, which is probably where I put my money. But the alternative would be the parties might agree to actually have a negotiation over the language of a waiver, which would open kind of a new door and keep everybody busy, at least through the summer. So we'll see. It's always
1: something.
2: (laughs) Okay, thanks for a great episode, Bill and Scott. Talk to you guys soon.
1: Okay, thank you. Bye-bye.